You're listening to Training Data from Cosmic Works, which is a part of the IQT podcast series, which can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. Hi, my name is Ryan Lewis, and welcome to another episode of Training Data, a podcast brought to you by Cosmic Works. All right, today we're talking about really important topic that actually is something that we considered when we were first founding Cosmic back in 2015, which is essentially exploring how machine learning and remote sensing can be used to help respond to humanitarian disasters or more generally just help first responders. If you look back just in the last year and a half, there's been a myriad of incidents ranging from the impact of Hurricane Maria to the devastation of Ebola occurring in uh, several West African countries. And really the, the same thing that is occurring across all these different types of crises is, as my colleague Dylan likes to point out, is that the common feature is the same questions remain of how do we deploy staff? So these are either clinicians or first responders or law enforcement to those in need with the right stuff. So whether these be vaccinations or aid or some other type of material to the right location at the right time. And this is a really hard problem, particularly when you're looking at something where you have a very short time window and in a lot of cases, not that much data. And so one of the first things that comes to our mind from a technology perspective is what tools and data are in place that we can use to help answer those questions quickly and accurately. And so obviously, given the focus we've had on this podcast and what we focus on in the lab more generally, satellite imagery can play a major role in these events and hopefully enable us to answer questions such as where do we see uh, displaced populations going or more generally where do we think the impact against the power grid can be but however in order to answer that it's not simply a matter of looking at one image and in a lot of cases it's not even a, a matter of looking at two or three in order to really understand these trends and detect meaningful changes we have to look at deep time series of data and that is a very different problem and so today, on today's pod, we're really going to be talking about two different things. Uh, the first is, how can we quickly analyze deep stacks of imagery? Uh, this is a non-trivial problem. Uh, a lot of work's been done in this domain, uh, but it's not just a matter of analyzing those data, but also making sense of them quickly and visualizing those trends. And the second piece that we're going to talk about is, how can those tools be used to support a particular humanitarian application? So in the booth with me today is we have what some may call, I know I call it, this, the scientific dream team. So we have Dylan George and Jake Shermeyer. I'm not sure which one's Jordan, which one's Pippin. I know Jake threw in something about Bird, but I wasn't paying any attention. I, that, that's I, think, I think I'm the Larry Bird of the, the group. <laughs> Whatever. All right. Not off to a great start. Regardless. Fine. Regardless. Uh, so let me introduce these guys because, uh, well, Jake's been on the pod before. Dylan's new. So first, uh, Dylan George, he's currently vice president uh, on Inkytel's technical staff, specifically with the B-Next Lab. Before that, he was a senior policy advisor uh, for biological threats, uh, threat defense at the White House during the Obama administration. Dylan, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here with you guys. I'm really enjoying it. It's yeah. awesome. And Jake, uh, making your second appearance. Yep. I'm uh, feeling really confident about this. It's, it's great to be back. Uh, I'm a research scientist here, here at Cosmic. Um, yeah, I feel like we have a pretty good crew here today. I mean, we've got a biologist, an economist, and a geographer. It seems like the beginning of a joke. Really? Walk into a bar. Potentially a bad joke. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what the punchline is. But. So the end of this podcast, we have yes. to figure it out. Yes. <laughs> okay. I'm putting a note on that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, before we get into the content, because we have a lot to go through, 
um, especially because Dylan's uh, this is his first time. Dylan, you would just want to give us a little background on uh, Inkytel's effort with Be Next, kind of what you're interested in and what really brought you to collaborate on this specific project. Yeah, one of the things that, that Be Next is really interested in is, is uh, one of the components is, is how do we re- respond to an infectious disease outbreak and how do we use technology to amplify our ability to respond and prepare for that. And so um, one of the things that we think about a lot within BNEXT is what are the technology underpinnings that will allow us to do that in a more expeditious way? Um, and so we spend a lot of time thinking about a range of different technologies uh, that will allow us to, to do that. And one of those areas is uh, data and analytics. How can we use data and analytics to right size and, and optimize and speed up responses in some way? Well, I have to say it was it was really cool to collaborate on this project with, uh, with you. And why don't we just dig right in? And so I think you know one of the things, uh, particularly for the work you know that Jake and I have done over the last couple of years and the rest of our team, it's so tempting right, to immediately jump into the technical details of a solution. And yet, given the applic- like the application that we're seeking to serve here, it, it's worth going into to say, like, why is this important in the first place? Like, why are we trying to do this? And so let's start at the beginning. Like, how do humanitarian organizations and researchers, like, assess population and try to figure out population dynamic change today? Yeah, I mean, this is a great, really great question. And one of the reasons why this question is so important is because if we're thinking about childhood immunization programs or trying to bring down under five, morta- under five um, mortality rates in kids, Uh, One of the best things you can do about that, among uh, a couple things, is vaccination rates, increasing vaccination rates for vaccine-preventable diseases, Um, and especially in low- and middle-income countries. Um, And then also, if we think about these, uh, you know, uh, heaven forbid if we ever have a pandemic of massive proportion, we would have to vaccinate a large portion of the population very quickly. And to try to think about how would we do that, knowing where people are um, so that you can get the right the right vaccinators to get vaccines into people's arms is a big deal. So having the right staff and stuff in the right place so that you can actually have effect of either immunizing children or um, stopping a pandemic is a really big deal. Um, And so more often than not, this is a really, uh, this is, we know where people are more often than not. You know I mean? In the United States, I go from home to work to the gym and back and forth. That's fairly staid sort of, sort of pattern. But if we were going to think about another situation like in a low and middle income country or where an outbreak were happening in a sub-Saharan Africa, uh, um, especially in a, in a location like Niger, where 30 percent of the population moves seasonally, then it becomes really challenging to do either a response to a pandemic or childhood immunizations. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the people in Niger are moving seasonally because they're following work from in the wet season versus the dry season. And, um, you know, and looking at um, knowing where they are in any particular time in those particular seasons can be challenging. And, um, uh, and, and how many people are in the area at a given time uh, really will dictate a lot of the decisions that we're thinking about for any kind of response, not only for immunizations and, and such, but also for a range of different humanitarian responses if a disaster were to occur. So, so obviously we're going to talk about satellite imagery today and some of the work we did, but there's other data types as well. So put satellite imagery aside for a second. What are organizations using right now to even roughly project uh, a dynamic population like what what ha- like what Niger has? Yeah. No, I mean, like in, in um, you know, 
more developed economic countries, uh, you, you, do, you de definitely see other sorts of capabilities that could be brought to bear. So everyone's walking around with mobile phones or mobile devices of some sort. And so those track where people are. And you can use those data very effectively um, to assess, you know, locations of people in, in, in certain periods of time. Also, you can use called data records, just the just the, the information that's going across the, the, the mobile devices, not necessarily even the information that's going across them, but just where they were when they made the calls. Yeah. Just that information alone will help you assess numbers of people through time at, at some in, in some granularity. So that that's really useful. The challenge that we're talking about though too that that um, you know Jake and I started thinking about was was uh, more in low and middle income countries where you don't have as high a penetrance of cell phone data um, or social media data. You, I mean, you get you get really good assessment of who's on the golf course in you know in low and middle income countries, but you don't where the, the bulk of the populations are. Yeah. And so there's there there's inherent limitations with call data records or mobile phone devices data that's coming off of other mobile phone devices or social media of some sort like that. So um, for thinking about it in the low and middle income countries, it's really challenging to use some of those data. In addition, some of those data, um, because they're being driven by um, um, uh, mobile phone operators, the, the jurisdiction of yeah. the mobile phone operator is delimits the kind of information and inference you can make. And so once they go off that network, that, that operator doesn't have the, those data anymore. Um, and, and so that can become challenging as well. <clears throat> and honestly, that, that even extends to more established economies where yep. you have any scenario mm -hmm. where if the cell towers go out, I mean, I, I noticed, you know, here in the city, we had a lot of rain yesterday and there was some trouble signal and people just panicked. Right. And, yeah. and so as a result, like even lever or relying exclusively upon one data source, right, there's a lot of criticality that it can, can exist. And even in a natural disaster in an established economy, you could lose a lot of those data sources. Absolutely. So, yeah. so that brings us to satellite imagery. Right. And so we've focused on this for years. And I think the one thing we must say right in the lab at least once a week is that geo is hard. Right. And so on the one hand, right, satellite imagery is in many cases ubiquitous. In some cases, if it's provided by the U.S. government or another government, it's free or very low cost to use. But it's hard to work with. Yeah. Add on top of that, we're now going to be taking dense. We're not just looking at a single image. We'll be looking at lots of images. So mm -hmm. we're now multiplying that complexity. So how does imagery to date play in with... Uh, the first response or humanitarian response community. Yeah, you know, we were looking at it as a really valuable data source for detecting change. And so we were thinking about, you know, like how do we track a population at a regional scale and at a seasonal scale? And so inherently the, the satellite imagery seemed like a really good resource for that particular use case because for all the reasons that you stated, freely available, you know, it's um, um, uh, easy to access and you can use it as proxies. And, in, 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 you know, and there's some, some really great work being done, you know, at Penn State by some of our colleagues, you know, Anita Barty and, and some of these other folks, um, Andy Tatum um, you know, over in the UK as well, that they've used satellite imagery um, very effectively to try to anticipate or try to characterize where populations are going because if you have anthropogenic generated light you can actually use nighttime imagery yeah. to see where they are and then if you put them in a time series you can actually then see where they move across the landscape through time if you put 
generate that time series of data of nighttime imagery. And so, um, like I said, Nita Barty and Andy Tatum, they've done really amazing work in this space. Um, uh, and it's come up with some really wonderful academic work. Um, the, the challenge as with a lot of academic work though, is this, um, it becomes manual bespoke and, um, focused on generating a really good publication versus focused on trying to influence decisions in a, in a response setting where time is critical. And that's why, you know, when Jake joined the team at, um, at, um, Inkytel labs, it was, you know, amazing because the things that he was working on were exactly the right kind of skill sets that we needed to start thinking about this and thinking about it in a more robust way to create the, the great idea that the academicians were coming up with in terms of how to do this with how to think about using nighttime imagery, um, to assess how people are moving in a regional and seasonal scale, but then start to make it into a tool that anyone could be, could use, um, for rapid response and, and understanding moving forward. Absolutely. And I think there's, we could have a whole nother pod just talking about how different humanitarian organizations use different mm-hmm. data sets. Another book that we'd recommend is digital, uh, humanitarians by Patrick Meyer. It's definitely worth a read. Amazing. Um, but <clears throat> we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're actually going to dig into the details of Comet TS, what we did with the data set, and how we applied that uh, to looking at imagery from uh, Puerto Rico after uh, Hurricane Maria. But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Where in the world is Cosmic? Right, We're often on the road. People ask us that often. And by people, I think it's just people at work or just Jake, really. But, you know, oftentimes we're on the road and we're going to be back. Uh, this time we're going to be at Phosphor G 2019, and it's in lovely Bucharest, Romania. Jake, what are we doing there? Uh, we're doing several things, Ryan. Uh, the first thing that I'm working on is actually going to be a presentation describing Comet TS. So if you want to see me live in person and with some great graphics and maps, uh, I'll be, be there giving a talk on Comet. Um, beyond that, we also have uh, a new software package called Solaris, and we're organizing a workshop around that, and that helps you be able to build and train your own uh, model to uh, detect various types of uh, objects, buildings, segment out roads, and overhead imagery. Uh, so I'll be helping our associate and former podcast, Nick Weir, on that. Uh, and then uh, finally, we have our fearless leader, Ryan Lewis, who will be giving a talk on SpaceNet, which we've uh, had a few podcasts on previously and we'll continue to talk about in the future. Yeah, and we'll be posting more of this information. Uh, on our website, as well as through our different social media channels on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, so it's going to be a great conference. Uh, clearly, I'm rocking the, the Phosphor G North America. So overall, it's a great community. Looking forward to supporting it. And with that, let's get back to the pod. Okay, we're back. We're talking with Dylan George and Jake Shermeyer about analyzing time series data for humanitarian response. And so, so anyone who's listened to this pod or, or read Cosmic's blog Obviously, we're focused on accelerating open source applied research for geospatial analytics, right? But one of the first questions, right, that we were looking at with this project is what gap are we trying to solve? Specifically, what software was missing that we needed or we thought we needed to help really deliver an answer for the communities we were just talking about? Sure. Um, So, I mean, as you said earlier in the podcast, geo is hard. Uh, and there's a lot of tools out there already, but they're all pretty bespoke or they require a significant background in geospatial expertise to, to really use them well. Uh, so GIS systems, so geographic inter- information systems, 
uh, that that's typically a requirement to do a lot of this stuff and you typically need some training to do that uh, so we wanted to remove that requirement uh, so that we, we decided to do that when we built this tool this tool is called Comet TS um, or a Comet time series and uh, beyond that we wanted to make sure that the tool was Pythonic so it's coded in Python it's open to a broader data science community that's comfortable working with Python um, and uh, really what Comet enables is us to tease out trends over a, a time series of satellite imagery. So we're, we wanna see what's happening over time, how things are changing over time, and then can we detect anomalies that, that happen as a result of that. Um, another cool thing that kind of makes Comet unique versus some of the other tools on the market right now are uh, it looks at clusters of pixels. You can look at larger polygons. So you wanna look at a full city versus just a, a single pixel. Uh, that that's really a, a powerful addition, um, and it sets it apart in terms of being able to visualize broad areas versus just individual pixels. So, so Dylan mentioned looking at nighttime imagery. Is the is this software suite agnostic? Because I know mm -hmm. in certain cases, right, there may be great collects uh, with nighttime data. In other cases, there may not. So we want to have something that was flexible. Is that possible? If so, how do sure. we do that? Sure. Uh, so, I mean, Comet has built to support all kinds of overhead or, or satellite imagery. So as long as it's georeferenced uh, appropriately to some location on the Earth uh, and, and a pretty standard image format, so we, have, uh, we support dozens of different image formats that you can bring in uh, to the tool, um, Comet really can enable you to, to do this type of work. So we can look at multispectral data, we can look at nighttime imagery. Um, so when I say multispectral, I'm talking about satellites like Landsat or Sentinel or, or Planet or, or even Digital Globe if the revisit rate is uh, consistent enough to have a long enough time series. So for the project that we're gonna talk about here, uh, specifically looking at uh, imagery over Puerto Rico, what, what data set did we use uh, primarily? Sure. Uh, so this this one, we went to the nighttime lights just because we were really interested in electrification rates following Hurricane Maria. And uh, we wanted a time series that was long enough to really establish a nice historical baseline to compare what happened after the storm versus the, this historical baseline. So uh, we used the NPP VIRS data set. So that's uh, the National Polar Partnership. I can Google it if you yeah, need to. Yeah. Just, just rolls off the tongue. Yeah, it yeah. does. It's, uh, you, you, can, you can Google it yourself if you're, if you're interested. Anyway, regardless, Veer's data is a daily revisit satellite where we look at uh, nighttime imagery. Um, it also does daytime collects, but uh, specifically we worked with the, the nighttime collects here to detect uh, brightness and changes to brightness over time. And, and just to kind of explain it out, what, why specifically would we be interested or any sort of first responder group would be interested in electrification? Like, that's obviously a proxy. What, why, why focus specifically on that? Sure. I mean, if you want to identify areas that have, uh, you know, that, that are obviously darker than what they are expected to be, uh, that would be a, a great location to probably prioritize and send aid to. Uh, more specifically, you might want to identify areas that are struggling to recover. So big cities uh, often, at least in the case of Puerto Rico, recovered faster versus the, the more rural areas. So prioritizing the, those rural locations is... Uh, something that could be valuable as well. Got it. So we, we looked at Veers primarily. Did you look at anything else in addition to that? Uh, for this project, we also looked at, at Landsat data to kind of uh, establish a baseline of where, where the urban centers were and uh, really zero in on, on different urban areas. Uh, and we've also worked with Landsat with, with Comet TS, our, our software package, um, several other, other times as well in the past. So we wanted to test this out. So 
we talked about looking at uh, the impact after uh, Hurricane Maria. Like, let's break down how we did that. Uh, so how did we break down the problem? What was the data set we used? And then Jake will obviously get into the performance results. But sure. starting from the top, like how did we, how do you, just for everyone who's listening, who's maybe not used to either working in geodata or even thinking about bounding uh, an applied research problem like this, how did we start? Like how, what areas did we look at and what, what, what sort of time horizon did we look at? Dylan? Well, I mean, you know, following Hurricane Maria when it hit Puerto Rico was a really, um, the, the the challenge of bringing electricity back to Puerto Rico was you know in the public eye for quite a while and it was um it was interesting though too because I had a couple of colleagues that were living in Puerto Rico at the time and they were tweeting out the number of neighbors and the number of people that they knew that still didn't have electricity um, relative to some of the the government figures that were coming out and it became this issue of you know which data um, and yeah. what what should you look at and and how should you know the the progress of what's going forward. And it, it was interesting. I think it was like over lunch one day, I'd, I'd mentioned this to Jake and saying, hey, you know, you could do this yeah. with Comet TS. I remember you guys coming over and talking yeah. about it after. And it was, um, it, was, it was a really interesting sort of idea on how could you actually apply what we were thinking about for vac- improving vaccination rates uh, in, for childhood immunization in, in Niger for measles. How could you apply that for uh, a humanitarian response? And that's when Jake just took it by the horns and, and ran with it. Yeah, um, so... The thing we wanted to consider with, with Puerto Rico was what well, we needed data and we needed to be able to kind of bound our data in, in an intelligent way to really identify how many people were without power over time and what areas were, were struggling to recover. So a, as I stated, we used the NPP viewers data set because it had a nice long time series. So we looked from April of 2012 to um, I think we, our, our final date was around July of uh, 2018 to see uh, how things had changed over time and how how the storm had really affected Puerto Rico. Um, We also needed some sort of population estimate to be able to really identify the number of persons without power. Uh, So we used uh, U.S. Census tracts across Puerto Rico. So if you're not familiar with the U.S. Census, they have different uh, geographies that they break up areas into. Uh, Census tracts is a common one where you typically have a few thousand people in, in each of these areas. So the areas aren't the exact same size, but they typically have a similar number of people across you know, the, the entire country and uh, U.S. territories. Uh, so we, we took in the, the census tracts. There were uh, 945 uh, distinct areas or tracts. Um, and then combining that with the uh, NPP VIRS data, we were able to conduct one of the first independent remote sensing estimates of the number of persons without power over time. Uh, for, from space, and then we could compare that versus the official estimates on the ground from the, the Electrical Power Authority. Just one sort of detailed uh, question. How much did you need sort of pre-event or pre-disaster, and how much did you really require post-disaster? Because essentially, you know, in, the, in my mind, right, when we were first scoping this out, a majority of the data that we would need would be post-event, right? You have a, right. a static look at what is deemed as a standard or normal day, mm-hmm. right? And then we just do all the imagery after the event to see the trends. Sure. I think, uh, I don't know if that answer, if I can answer that in a quantifiable way, but um, I, I think that longer time series before a disaster is always going to have uh, much more value to you because you're going to be able to see different trends that you might not otherwise be able to see that might get covered up if you just have a few spotty observations. Got it. So based on all the information that we put together, how did sort of the trends that we detected compare with some of the uh, official analyses that were being reported at the time? Sure. So um, 
as I said, we had the, we had the nice long time series of data. So we started in April 2012, and then uh, we ran until about July of, of 2018. Uh, so we what we ended up doing was dividing the data up into a pre and post storm. So two distinct data sets. We have one time series looking at, at the before and one time series looking at the after. Um, so when we look at the before, we can actually pull out uh, a historical trend and quantify that with a model. So we, we fit a model to each of the census tracts uh, and we can detect what the average light is over time and what it's expected to be uh, throughout each season. So each month we, where, where we can forecast where would we would expect the brightness to be if the storm had not hit. Um, so using that, we can use this forecasting model. It's called an autoregressive integrating moving average model uh, to pull out this trend. Uh, so this is actually an old technique designed in the 1960s for like weather forecasting or uh, economic forecasting. So say, uh, I know that it's Christmas, so I expect there to be a, an uptick in sales this time of year. Can I, can I have a model to, to predict how much money we expect to make? Um, so we applied this exact same idea uh, to the post-Maria time series, and we wanted to see how bright we, we expected each census tract to be if, if the storm had not hit. Um, and ultimately what we found was that uh, our numbers really tracked pretty well with the, the official estimates initially, um, but then a, as they went out over time, uh, our estimates started to diverge. Uh, quite a bit. So our, our final findings showed that uh, roughly 14% of the population was still without out power uh, as of uh, May of 2018. And the official estimates there were that it was less than 1%. Um, so there, there's a variety of reasons why that, that really could be. There, there, what are, what are some of them? Um, so, I mean, the first is that, uh, that, you know, perhaps there is some error in what the power authority was reporting. That's certainly possible. Uh, another possible scenario here is that uh, a, a significant amount of infrastructure has actually been lost in these areas that yeah. actually emits power. Uh, so even if the grid is 99% repaired, uh, some you know, streetlights or buildings are, are not being turned yeah. on anymore just because they, they've been washed out. Um, and then another issue is, of course, just uh, people emigrating out of the area. I think Puerto Rico is estimated to lose have lost several several hundred thousand people as a result of Maria that have emigrated to, to the continental U.S. Or, or elsewhere. So to kind of wrap this all up, right, we've put we've put Comet TS out on GitHub. We've done we've thought about make adding some additional functionality. We've actually already gone through and done some updates already. Jake, what are what are some of those updates include? Uh, sure. So I mean, as I said, the uh, the forecasting model that we used that wasn't originally part of the software package, um, and now now it is. So uh, we added this this forecasting functionality where you can split your data to a pre or post event, uh, run run your forecasting model, and then uh, be able to tease out some some of the similar trends that I, I just talked about with uh, the, the Puerto Rico analysis. Uh, the other cool thing is it automatically flags anomalies now. So if an area oh, is cool. brighter or darker than it's expected to be, it, it will alert you that that's actually happening. So you and I just don't have to look at trend lines for like three hours? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> right. uh, so I didn't know if you wanted to do that still. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm available this week. I mean, the Comet has a great visualization feature where you can you know, visualize what's actually happening over time. Uh, but beyond that, uh, it also has just like a tabular output format. So you just want to see your detailed statistics in like an Excel sheet. You can do that too and, and pull it into different uh, 
different software to really do a deeper analysis if you want to. Um, Comet right now is really more of a first look tool, I would say. Um, it's, yeah. it's a developing software package, and we, we'd really love for more people to start to contribute to it and, and pick it up and uh, perhaps you know, be able to contribute some of their own ideas. Got it. You know, one of the things that was really great, though, too, is like an, uh, um, uh, the genius of Jake is, is, is that well, he was able I mean, to develop this tool. And I don't that, know if I'd say that. <laughs> and um, you know, I, was, um, I was talking to a colleague of mine in New York who works in disaster response uh, s- scenarios, and he, didn't f- he knew me when I was working in the, in the, um, uh, uh, in the United States federal government. Um, and then I had transitioned to InQtel, and we hadn't talked to, e- to one another in, in a while. And he, when I said that I was working at InQtel, he said, oh, hey, do you know those guys at Cosmic, I think is the way they sung? They did this really great thing in Puerto Rico where they were looking at the time trends of, of electrification and light coming on, and it was really helpful for X, Y, and Z reasons. And um, it was one of those um, testaments to me of the value of doing these types of projects of actually hardening tools from the academia into something that can be useful because actually people out there actually used it and they found it to be valuable. So that was That's you know, awesome. one of those really exciting particular yeah, stories cool. that just happened recently. And so with, with that in mind, we put this stuff out there. People are starting to use it. You know, just in preparing for this pod, I was just reading an article yesterday indicating, right, there's a growing number of displaced people right in the Democratic Republic of Congo as caused by the most recent outbreak of the Ebola virus, right, and thinking about how to even estimate the impact of the population of the people there, right, could we use a tool like this uh, to maybe help in that in that scenario? I, I think so, possibly. I think I think that it, it could potentially be used in that situation. I think that there are some limitations of how to apply this particular type of data for understanding how people are moving around. Um, one is um, the uh, cloud cover and yeah. canopy cover. And so the Democratic Republic Congo, depending on where you are, I mean, it's equatorial, so it's in a tropical setting. And so there's, there's, there is lots of, uh, uh, of both of those. And so the, the degree to which we could actually generate a time series um, that would be sufficient uh, with enough um, um, uh, collect and that wouldn't be under canopy, that would be the questions that point. would be very interesting to explore. But and they, they certainly can't see through cover, so that, that is a limiting factor. Uh, we, we built Comet, we knew that cloud cover was a factor that could really uh, impact the time series analysis, and we did build in functionality to handle cloud cover. So we have a cloud mask, mask out through the clouds, and observations. that i'd say this was an awesome project guys i really appreciate you coming in to talk about it today thanks a lot no thank you it's been it's been really fun yeah it was fun cool all right well we'll be back in the next couple of weeks with the new pod discussing the state of the commercial space and aerospace market with several venture capital groups make sure to tune in take care space club rule 29 if only there was a way Thank you for listening to today's show. You can find more information and links to different sites and data sets and presentations about the content discussed today at cosmicworks.org, and that's cosmic with a Q, spacenet.ai, and our blog, The Downlink, on Medium, 
which is with a Q. You're seeing a trend here. We like the letter Q. Thank you to Kristen Zender and Carrie Sassine from IQT's marketing and communications team. Music was provided by DC Zone Redline Addiction. Talk again soon. Take care.